In your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll continue on uh, reminded uh, of this great passage, the first three verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies, and all evil speakings, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Mr. Thomas Watson helps us out today. Uh, I'm always uh, pleased when I run back to Thomas Watson to find some, uh, some helpful uh, piece of advice, his his means of expression is, I think, somewhat unique to him. I think you'll find uh, him to be very, very profitable today. So, Thomas Watson, weak faith is a growing faith. It is resembled by the grain of mustard seed, of all seeds the least. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air came and lodged in the branches thereof. Faith must have a growing time. The seed springs up by degrees, first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear. The strongest faith hath sometimes been weak. The faith that hath been renowned in the world was once in its infancy and minority. Grace is like the waters of the sanctuary, which did rise higher and higher. Wait on the ordinances. These are the breasts to nourish faith. Be not discouraged at thy weak faith, though it be now in the blossom and bud. It will come to the full flower. Well, I think that's very well said, isn't it? So we've been talking about Christian growth from uh, Peter's word here. We had a couple of things last week that we did by way of brief review. We talked about tasting and dining and growing, tasting, eating, and growing. And that's, that's, what, we, that's what we have uh, designed for us to understand. We have a phrase in our language. We'll take a look at, you know, some of you families here have some young men that are growing, getting tall. They're starting to thicken out. They're, they're, where they are, uh, if you will, uh, I know they're probably not walking, they're running into their manhood. We look at one another, don't we, from time to time, and we say, what are you feeding him? We say that, don't we? What are you feeding him? He's growing, he's getting big, he's getting strong, he's getting tall and all of those things. What are you feeding him? But beloved, it's the same thing here. What are we dining on? What are we feasting on? Because... If we're feasting on that good word of God, that pure milk of the word, we can expect Christian growth. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we might be able to look at one another and we might say, what are you feeding on? I want some of that. I want that same kind of growth. I want that same kind of maturity. That same kind of Christian love, magnanimity, uh, adherence to commandment of God with not just with the outward expression but with the inward affection 
What is it that you, sir, you, madam, have been feeding on that I might have some of that for myself? So we talked about growth generally, uh, beginning uh, last week. Then we moved on. Secondly, we looked at two particular aspects of Christian growth as, as they are set before us. The first was growth in grace, and the second, growth in knowledge, both from 2 Peter 3.18, his benediction to the people of God as he closes out his second epistle. We might say, uh, if we would think about 2 Peter for a moment, and this is the advantage of, of being always in the scriptures, beloved, that we can say things about 2 Peter that other people are ignorant of. What does Peter say about that particular book? I'm getting old, and so I want to stir you up by way of sincere mind to follow those things that you have heard, right? Isn't that how 2 Peter progresses? Isn't Peter talking about stirring up the people of God? And so Peter, self-conscious of his own age and ready departure, says to them, after my departure, I want you to remember these things. And what is his parting shot? 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the greatest things that the apostle Peter wished for, for the people of God, was growth in grace and knowledge. Well, that should, that should make it more important to us as we have the apostle Peter as a as an inspired teacher, one who spoke by the Holy Ghost, we can then understand that his parting shot to us and all of the importance that it had to him rose up out of his heart by the Spirit of God and we should take that to heart ourselves then. That we want to grow, number one, in grace. And how did we say we grow in grace? Well, we said that growing in grace is really that, that umbrella that goes over everything in Christian growth, Right? Everything that we talk about is growth in grace. And we, we said that although it is singular in the text, it is also understood that we're growing in graces. Right? We can, we can parse these things out as we will in these next few weeks as we look at eight things. Or as Peter will do in Second Peter chapter 1, rather than looking at growth in any one particular thing, in Second Peter chapter 1 he'll talk about us growing thing upon thing upon thing upon thing. Right? He'll say, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, and so on. And he'll take you all the way through the end of what our Puritan fathers called that golden chain of Christian growth. So that's the first thing, to grow in grace. And how did we say the best way to grow in grace is? Again, we're not making a sermon out of each of these, but being somewhat brief so we can move through them. And that is that we said... The way we grow in grace is to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap life everlasting. And if we sow, if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap life everlasting. If we sow to the flesh, it is of the flesh that we will reap corruption instead. Not growth, but putrefaction. Right? So that's number one from last week, or actually number two. It was in the middle after the, the introduction to growth generally. And then... The third point that we raised last week was growth in knowledge. Growth in knowledge. We want to be a people that grow in our knowledge of God, in our knowledge of Christ, in our knowledge of Scripture. And why is that? So that our contemplation and adoration of God can deepen and grow and broaden and be lifted up 
from false and substandard ideas of God and Christ to who they, these persons of the Trinity, including the Spirit of God, actually are. There is a, there is a contemplation of God that belongs to the people of God, but it must be a contemplation in knowledge, a contemplation in truth. We don't want by our meditations of God to bring down our knowledge. We want in our meditations to cry up our knowledge and to raise it and to increase it. And so we must stick closely to the scriptures in that. And in every one of these aspects of Christian growth, what did we say? That it's the pure milk of the word by which we grow. What are you feeding him? You're feeding him the word and that's how he's growing. And when I say him there, I mean your own heart. That's, that's how you're doing that. So that's a review from last week. This week, we want to talk about growth in faith, first of all. And for that, let's turn to a couple of different passages. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke first, chapter 17. Before we dive in there, let me say something to you about a review that we do every week. Uh, hopefully it will be helpful to you. Um, <laughs> I have in my mind, <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a scary place, but I have in my mind a complete outline of, of, of where we're going here. All of these things that we're going to talk about. And I bring the review back to us every week so that we'll know where we are in the outline. So that we can go from one end of it to the other and understand where we are that we might profit the more. I believe that we profit more from understanding where we are in the, in the scope of the whole. And so that's why I bring you the, these reviews every week so that we'll stay in that context. All right. So Luke 17 verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto them through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, Thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. The second passage that I have in mind is Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you 
in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which ye endure. Well, in those two passages we see, in the first one, we see the apostles crying out for an increase of their faith. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see the apostle Paul commending the Thessalonian church that their faith grows exceedingly. So Paul came to the Thessalonian church, preached the gospel to them. We'll remember that there was some difficulty there, right? We're in Acts chapter 17, the second missionary journey. After leaving Macedonia over to Thessalonica, which is uh, still in Macedonia, but, but, but a ways away from Philippi. And so here they are preaching, and remember the Jews are stirred up there, and they run Paul out of the town on a rail, and Paul goes south to Berea, or sorry, a little bit more uh, east to Berea. And what do they find in Berea? That these were more noble, these Jews. In Berea, they were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures, seeing that these things were true. It was an interesting statement. I, I think Luke imbibes there in a classical understatement because the, the Jews in Thessalonica uh, became very angry, very incensed, very animated, and ran Paul out of town on the threat of persecution. And then in Berea, they were, quote, more noble. You see how Luke compares the two cities and the, um, the adherence of the ancient religion of the Jews. Um, but notice that here in 2 Thessalonians, what we see is that the Thessalonian faith is a growing faith. It's a growing faith. And how, how is it growing? Well, it, it's, it's growing because they are feeding on the word of God. And that feeding on the word of God allows them or helps them or strengthens them, if you will, to stand in the face of the persecution that they continue to endure. As a matter of fact, 2 Thessalonians is a lot about that persecution, especially the first chapter. The apostle will go on to assure the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that this is a token of the righteous judgment of God that they are today enduring persecution, that God will indeed come back, that Jesus will return, and when he, when he returns, he will bring with him flaming fire and vengeance upon all those who persecuted his people, and those who have been persecuted will rest with Christ when he returns. And so what has this persecution done with regard to the Thessalonians? Well, they have felt the consternation, the difficulty, the affliction, the threat, the persecution. And so what has it done for them? The persecution itself, beloved, did not make their faith grow. The persecution drove them to the word of God. Where they might read of their comfort and assurance and rest in Christ. And that's how they grew. It's not just affliction. It's not just affliction that makes you grow. Oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It makes you stronger if you handle it correctly. It makes, it, it makes you stronger if you have the word of God to inform you as to how to handle it. It's the carnal man that thinks, you know, that, that guy that I know at my workplace, all he needs is a good trimming and that'll fix him up. Actually, what it will do is probably harden him in his wickedness unless he come under the spirit of God and the influences of of the word of God 
to grow thereby through affliction. Yes, indeed, the Spirit of God often uses affliction. Uh, The Word of God is also the comfort of the people of God in times of affliction that their faith might grow and increase. But we should not expect, should we? We should not at all expect that anyone will grow in faith simply by means of affliction. No. It drives us to the Word. And in driving us to the Word, it is by that Word that we grow. That's what we begin to feed upon. We have the same sort of thing happening here in Luke 17. If we turn back there for a moment. And I do want to make a brief interlude because of our contextual environment in our society. We hear much these days, do we not, about the abuse of children. Uh, They are abused in all kinds of ways. Children... Children, hear me very, very well, very clearly for a moment here. That you are in Christian households and your parents desire to raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching you the truth about Christ, bringing you to church, um, giving you all of those wonderful spiritual advantages which, which always do, under the, uh, under the Lord's hand, blossom into all kinds of other advantages. Children, I hope you're thankful to the Lord for that. Because there are many, many, can I say it again? Many children in this world that do not enjoy such things. And what are their parents doing to them? They're feeding them the poison of the world. They're mutilating them. In some cases, they're killing them. We live in an age, beloved, make no mistake, that hates children. Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Our world says, Get those grubby little things away from me. It is as vexing a thing as we might open our hearts to and grievous the more we open our hearts to that truth that is evident everywhere we look. And beloved, The world is good at hiding such things by saying what? It's for the children. It's for the children. It's for the children. But they don't mean it at all. What they mean is, it's for me. Who cares how it affects the children? Oh, that our leaders and others who have Uh, some responsibility over children would read the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus says. Then said he unto his disciples, it is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Our Lord's affection for the little ones is not in question. What is in question is the affection of everyone else. So, children, I hope you see and I hope that you appreciate and love your parents 
for every effort that they exercise toward you for your good, for your spiritual good, for your salvation. Listen to me, children. Know the God of thy mother and father. Hear him and hear him in them. All right, so that's my interlude. Now let's move on to the rest of this passage. And if he trespass, oh, sorry, verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he, rep- if he repent, forgive him. And if he, can I maybe change that a little bit to make it even a little bit more memorable? If he repent, forgive him. If he repeat, forgive him again. Is that what Jesus says? If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Well, the apostles heard that, and they said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. We don't have that kind of faith. May I do a, do a few things to, to help interpret this passage? We might, we might even say, I don't know how I would do in the second time, forget the seventh. I don't know how I would do in the seventh time, forget Matthew 18, the 70 times seven. And so the disciples recognize that they need an increase to their faith. Don't they? Forgiveness is a, is a precious commodity. Not to be squandered but to be augmented instead. And how is forgiveness augmented? Beloved, forgiveness is a fruit of faith. And so the disciples ask, not increase our ability to forgive, but increase our faith. Because that will indeed enhance and inflame all other Christian gifts. So, what does the Lord say? Does He give them encouragement or discouragement? Does He upbraid them? For having little faith? Or does he encourage them? Listen to what he says in verse 6. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. What does Jesus say to them? It's an interesting response, isn't it? He doesn't say, Something like, well, I'll pray for you that your faith would increase. No, he doesn't say that. He says, beloved, your faith will always be lacking. But that's okay, because even a little bit of faith is effectual. If you had faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this sycamine tree, which is, by the way, either a mulberry or a fig, depending on who it is that you read. Be thou plucked up and be planted, not be cast. We'll look at that in a moment with regard to the mountain. But be planted in the sea. Well, now wait a minute. Jesus isn't a very good arborist, is he? Anybody knows trees aren't planted in the sea. Anybody knows that. Especially sycamine trees. Especially mulberry trees. They're not... They're not found, you know, with water halfway up their trunk. They don't do well in that environment. What is Jesus getting across here then? What is he teaching? 
He's saying, beloved, with regard to your faith, a little bit of faith is enough to take this tree that is here planted and to pull it up by the roots and plant it in a place most unlikely, most against sense, and it will continue to be fruitful. Trees in Scripture are often used for people, are they not? Who is the man that, that uh, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful? What's he likened to in Psalm 1? A tree planted by the rivers of water who yields his fruit in its due season, right? When Jesus would heal the one blind man, you, you remember what he said, I see men, but they look like trees to me. Interesting, isn't it? And so perhaps Jesus is using that same metaphor here and saying this, that trees may be uprooted from where they are and planted somewhere else in the sea and still be fruitful. In other words, if you have just a little bit of faith, you just might see the gospel go from where it is now and be fruitful in the vast oceans of the world. That is, across the face of the deep. Did the disciples in that day have that kind of faith? Well, I don't know. They were still struggling with forgiveness of their brother. Could they have envisioned at this date in Jesus' ministry here that there was a time coming when the gospel would be uprooted out of Jerusalem and out of the Jews and planted in the sea, which is often a picture for the Gentile world. That that unfruitful, un, un, unruly, dark and mysterious world would bear fruit unto God. So Jesus is stretching their faith here, isn't he? But he's also encouraging them. And beloved, I want to encourage you with this. Jesus uses the grain of mustard seed I think for a reason. Because Christ will speak of that mustard seed as growing, won't it? Won't he? He will speak of that mustard seed which is like the kingdom of God, which begins with 12 or 11 scared men in an upper room and becomes a tree mighty enough that the birds of heaven will come and take refuge in its branches. That we might expect that this grain of mustard seed, this kind of faith might have its fruit in all of the world. We might expect that, won't we? How much faith do you think you have, beloved? Well, I think every one of us would say, Lord, increase my faith. And Jesus will assure us that that's what he's about by saying even mustard seed faith is enough. What is little faith all about then? How do we handle this phrase, little faith, and how do we come to the Lord in, in such a way? Well, let's, let's just give like we did last week with the example of Christ. Remember, we said, how do we know Christ? We came to John 4, and we, and we talked about his condescension. We lifted up off the page for a few minutes and said, look at all of this condescension. Let's think of Christ in the graciousness of his condescension for a moment and contemplate him like that. Okay, so Proverbs 15.1 says something that is, can I say it, counterintuitive to the natural man. It's a very simple, very short, and very elegant verse. It says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. 
That's it. I don't think anybody in this room has a difficulty understanding what that verse says. It's very clear. A soft answer turneth away wrath. If someone is angry with you, Solomon is calling for a response, not in kind, right? But instead in kindness, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Beloved, let me ask you, do you believe that? I know we would, sitting here in church in our best, our, in our Sunday best, that we would say, yes, pastor, I believe that. The Lord said it, and I believe it. The last time you were spoken to, roughly, when someone came to you in wrath, let me ask you, did you respond with a soft answer? Did you believe it in that moment? Because there are times when we... we uh, we know what the right answer is. And yet there are times in the heat of the moment where that answer is not found as it should be. And we found, rather, that we believed something else entirely. We believed rather than, a, than that a soft answer turns away wrath, that a rougher answer turns away wrath. We believed for a moment that this person just needs to be shut down. That I'm offended and I have a right here. We believe that instead. This is a very practical thing, isn't it? We might say the next time someone speaks roughly to us, if we respond in kind rather than in kindness, we might say something like, Lord, increase my faith. Help me to believe that a soft answer turns away wrath. Instead of a rougher answer, a more vehement response actually turns away wrath. It doesn't, beloved. Let's open the manual of the one who wrote our souls into existence and understand what he says about that and believe it. So there are instances where Jesus will, speaking with his disciples, say things like, O ye of little faith. Remember that? Let's talk about little faith for a few moments as we're uh, endeavoring to learn how to grow in faith. So Matthew chapter 6 is the first one. There are, I think I have four instances of little faith spoken of here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is, um, I, I am with most godly reformed commentators in understanding this as spoken primarily to his disciples in that day. Yes, there, were, there was a great multitude gathered, but I believe that Jesus was speaking primarily to his disciples and preparing them for their teaching ministry. So notice what he says here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? The first instance that we see of little faith here is worrying about temporal things. Now may I say, beloved, I think that this is a truly, quote, little faith exercise because it shows our disagreement with God. And any disagreement that we have with God in his supply is going to be a little faith 
disagreement. What, what do we mean when we say that? It's very simple, really, I think. I don't think any of us that, sitting, that are sitting in this room here today are afraid of starving. I don't think any of you are afraid of not having any clothes in your closet. I don't think any of you are afraid of not having a roof over your head. Right? What are the three things that he talks about, Jesus will say? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we put on? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Those, those basic necessities of life. Beloved, I'm convinced that none of you are thinking about that. I'm convinced that none of you are thinking, I don't have basic necessities. I think it's rather, we worry about temporal things because we don't have what we think we should have. Or what we want to have. That the Lord would keep something from us that we really want. That's the worry, isn't it? It's not that we don't have the basics. It's that we don't have some niceties that we are simply or have convinced ourselves that we just can't live without. Or that our lives would be so much more difficult without them. Where the Lord has promised to give you what you need. This disagreement then between ourselves and God and how and the manner which we are supplied reveals our little faith, doesn't it? Rather than being thankful for the things that God has given us and remembering the greater things that God has given us for our souls. So that's the first instance. The second instance, two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 8, we turn to verse 26. We'll begin in verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. We perish, we might translate that in modern English. We're perishing, we're about to die. The ship's about to sink. And so Jesus says this in verse 26. And he he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. This one might be a little more difficult than the last one. The last one we might be able to identify uh, our understanding. You know what? You're right, Pastor. I want much more than what God says that I should have. And, and so I see that as a lack in my faith. And I, I, I think I can really get to trusting the Lord more for what I do, you know, with what I do have and, and so on. And that, I think that that is you know, something that we can look at and we can grow toward that. But now here the disciples are fearing for their lives. Hmm. It's a little more difficult, isn't it? It's a little bit more difficult when you're in fear for your life to rest and trust in the Lord, or as Jesus was doing, to be asleep. Not to care for that outward circumstance to the point that you would, uh, you would be asleep. The disciples here, they've already heard in Jesus' ministry that they are his disciples and that he has plans for them. Suddenly, those plans don't sound so secure when the waves are crashing over the boat. Can you rest, beloved, when the waves are crashing over the boat? Jesus calls that little faith. The next instance is Matthew 14. 
one of the more famous passages. Um, we, uh, we have a phrase that has survived in our English language that comes out of Matthew chapter 14, right? Well, when will you walk on water? Right? That's a phrase. And what does that mean? When will you be able, like Jesus, to walk on water? When will you be perfect? Who gave you your least on things, in other words? Well, here we have Peter walking on the water with Christ or toward Christ in Matthew chapter 14. So, in the fourth watch of the night, I'm in verse 25, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Again, another little faith phrase. Now, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we see something that should really teach us all uh, something about our faith, and that is that one moment we can be walking on the water with Christ or toward Christ, and the other we can be crying out to him while we're sinking. In other words, our faith is not constant. It ebbs and flows because of our own weaknesses. And so there are times where we may be ready, faithful, stepping out on the water, ready to go. Right? Wow, I didn't know I could walk on water like this. And then just moments later, calling out to the Lord because we're about to drown. So we learn that our faith is not constant, that we need, can I put it this way, a steady supply of nourishment for growth. And then the final one is Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because, we have take, because ye have taken no, uh, brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up, neither the seven loaves, of the 4,000, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, but that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Little faith. Why? Why did they have little faith? Because they were focused on bread. They were focused on bread and what they might eat. And when they didn't have provision, they were worried about that. When they didn't make provision and plan ahead, well, they, they worried about that, that Jesus would be of, uh, of, a, of, a, of an irritated mind toward them because they didn't do their duty and bring bread. 
And so Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't hear scribes and Pharisees at all. They only heard the word leaven. Oh no, bread, we forgot it. Ah! Instead of thinking on what Jesus was actually teaching them, instead of having that heavenly focus, that doctrinal focus on the, the leaven, the evil, the poison, if you will, of the scribes and Pharisees and how they must turn away from it. And then what does he do? He bolsters their faith and causes it to grow by reminding them of his past great works, how that when you had 5,000 that had no bread, we fed them all. And you took up 12 baskets. And when there were 4,000 and we had no bread, we fed them all. And you took up seven baskets of fragments. How is it that you're wondering about bread? Bread is not the problem. False doctrine is. Beloved, if you want to feed your faith, it must be fed not with false doctrine, but with sound teaching from Christ. So four instances then of little faith that are sometimes too familiar to us, right? So there is such a thing as little faith. But beloved, may I say it this way? Little faith is different from no faith at all. Do you hear me say that? And does that encourage you? It should. Because that's why we're saying it. To encourage us to say that little faith is better than no faith at all. It was not a little faith at Kadesh Barnea that kept the people of God from crossing into the land of promise. It was no faith at all and they were rejected. Beloved, little faith is not rejected. Faithlessness is rejected. And Jesus would encourage us by using that, that, that term mustard seed faith so that our faith might grow as that mustard seed is wont to do, into something tall and strong and powerful. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 for a moment. We'll begin reading in verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came unto him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was Cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence and uh, to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you, howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Several things I want to uh, say to you as we close our sermon today from this particular passage. Uh, We might also uh, look at Matthew uh, 21, 21, uh, because it's a a parallel passage. Jesus says, uh, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and do not doubt, 
Ye shall not only do this which is done unto the fig tree, but also if ye shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. All right. So the first was a was moving a tree. Now we're moving a mountain by faith. What does it mean to move a mountain by faith? What is Jesus getting at here? And how shall we understand what Christ says? Uh, let's go ahead and clear up some doubts out of this passage first. There are those who look at this passage and wonder uh, what, what is going on. Why couldn't the disciples cast out that devil? Because there were other times that they did. There were times they were casting out demons, those disciples of Christ, even during that earthly ministry before Christ uh, went to the cross. So why not this one? Why not this one? Well, perhaps my answer won't satisfy all of the curiosities that come up about this passage. But I, I, I truly do think the answer is very simple. The answer is that the Lord prevented that devil from being cast out by the disciples so that we might have a wonderful teaching moment from Christ. It really is that simple, beloved. That the, the, what, what we're not talking about is, is a particularly vexatious spirit, although Jesus will say, uh, this one cometh out not by, but by prayer and fasting. And so he is teaching his disciples something about what their ministry will be later, that they must dedicate themselves to prayer and fasting, especially when they come up against the, the wiles of the enemy of our souls. Certainly that is true. It's always going to be true. Prayer and fasting is still a means that we, all of the disciples of Christ, will use, even though we don't live in miraculous or extraordinary days like those. Prayer and fasting still belongs to us. And prayer and fasting, as long as that prayer is in the name of Christ and, accord, and in accord with his word and the fasting so that we might meditate upon scripture and understand the word of God, it will be for the increase of our faith as well. But Jesus will say to them, it was for their unbelief that they could not cast out this devil. And so he will say, you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place. It is amazing to me that many commentators have missed what Jesus is saying here. What is going to be necessary? What is the casting out of devils all about in the New Testament? Why do we have it? And why don't we see it anymore? And your pastor believes that that particular activity has passed away with the age of the apostles. Why? Why is it that way? Because the casting out of devils is the sign, isn't it? That the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus will make that very plain in Matthew chapter 12. Again, we're focusing on the gospel of Matthew today because we have so many things that help us understand little faith. In Matthew 12, Jesus will say, But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then the, Spirit of, uh, sorry, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the sign. Jesus is coming. John announced it. Jesus the king has come and is establishing his kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as an evidence of the kingdom of God coming upon this world, the kingdom of Satan is being overthrown through the visible sign of the devils of, of, the, uh, of the devil being cast out. Very simple. Okay. 
So how does that relate to a mountain? Turn with me to Zechariah, please. The, the, the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 4. Verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and walked with me as a man that is wakened out of his, or sorry, waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and the seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and the two olive trees, and two olive trees by it. Uh, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake unto the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, verse 9, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me, uh, sorry, and his hands also shall finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? Wonderful. Wonderful prophetic passage. I remember one of my colleagues once reading from this passage and then looking up from the text and he says, the interpretation of this passage is as clear as the bright summer sun. Some of you may remember that. We were in church together. It's a hard passage, isn't it? But when Jesus is speaking to his disciples about a mountain being removed and cast into the sea, he's already spoken about a, about a tree being rooted up by what? faith in the in Matthew 17 he's still talking about faith it was because of their unbelief that they couldn't cast out that devil Jesus is still on the line of little faith here and he says it's the faith of a mustard seed that will do what Zerubbabel was charged to do in the days of Zechariah and what was that to build the temple of the Lord and it doesn't happen by might and it doesn't happen by power. It happens by the Spirit of the Lord. And as His disciples work by faith on that building. Beloved, what Jesus is telling His disciples is that the kingdom of God has come. And it is evidenced by the casting out of devils. And the kingdom of Satan is going to be plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea. And that rock that is cut out of the mountain without hands will come and strike all of the kingdoms of the world. And it will grow into a kingdom that will cover the face of the world. This is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 17. 
And he's telling his disciples, do you believe that? Well, we're in a day when we look around and we, we look at great decline from where we used to be. I wonder if it's truly decline. I wonder if it's not just making manifest that which was always there. We could, do, we could perhaps debate that. You know, that the way this nation looked in the 30s or the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then when everything seemed to fly apart in the 60s. Did the 60s really fly apart? Or did they really bring to light what was already there? It's hard to say for sure. I think I'm of, the, of that latter opinion. But we look at our own nation. We look at our own society. We look even at our own state and our own communities. And we see uh, what we might call wonderful in the sense of hard to believe. Wonderful uh, uh, enmity against Christianity. We see things that are hard to believe that are brought to bear against the kingdom of Christ. We see weapons trained upon the church. And we might be tempted to think, will this mountain ever grow? Well, there is a difference, beloved. I said I didn't want to take one per sermon, but this, one's, this one we're going to take two sermons. <laughs> well, okay. Because, because there is so much more by way of encouragement to talk to you about. What kind of faith does it take to see the mountain of the Lord rise up over all the kingdoms of the world? What kind of faith does it take? Mustard seed faith. Because mustard seed faith is better than no faith. But it is called mustard seed faith by the Lord. Because like that seed, it grows up into a tree that bears fruit and calls under its shelter many. Your Lord Jesus Christ has not left you without a witness to that kind of faith. Can you believe with me that one day the mountain of the Lord's house will be exalted above the nations and that every nation will flow into it? Can you believe the prophet Isaiah when he says that? Can you believe the prophet Isaiah when in chapter 49 the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his father will say, my labors are in vain and he'll say, no they're not. You're going to be my salvation to the end of the earth. Can you believe that beloved? Even just a little bit? With mustard seed faith? Because it is that kind of faith, that mustard seed faith, that, will, that the Lord will make use of to uproot that mountain of the enemy of our souls and cast it into the depths of the sea and to erect his mountain instead. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 17. May the Lord give us mustard seed faith. That faith that begins as the least of all seeds, but grows into a tree. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. <clears throat> Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee very, very encouraged. Oh Lord, our faith is little. Our faith is small. We remember Solomon 
If thou faintest in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. O Lord, our faith, our strength is small. Often, Lord, we look around us and we can't see a way out. We're left discouraged. Grant us instead, Lord, that mustard seed faith that grows and brings to pass all that thou hast promised to thy people. Lord, help us to look upon that mountain of thine and know that it indeed will rise above all other kingdoms of this world. Help us to look at that, at that mountain that is the, the, the kingdom of Satan. And help us to remember when we pray, thy kingdom come. That we pray that Satan and his kingdom may be destroyed. That thou will bring that to pass in due time. And then Lord, grant us that faith to believe that thou art doing so in that moment by moment fashion. Ordering all things in that best way to that grand end. And never to doubt. Help us Lord then. To confess our little faith unto thee. But to remember that thou hast called that faith. Not just little. But mustard seed faith. To remind us. To remind us of its, of its propensity. And its potential for growth. So help us to feed upon thy word. That we may grow thereby. We pray in Christ Jesus name. Amen.